Well, hello, Cornerstone. Harry, thank you so much uh, for those words and taking us back to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a... it's an important book for many reasons, but it reminds us of the brevity of life, the challenges of life, the threats uh, and dangers that we face walking and living in a fallen world. And that's really what I want to speak to you uh, this morning. Uh, I've been encouraged uh, recently as you watch Mike Riccardi's uh, kind of presentations on Pilgrim's Progress. Just the reminder that it is that we are on a journey as Christians navigating uh, the realities of a fallen world uh, headed to uh, an eternal home, a celestial city. And the fact of the matter is, uh, on this journey, we grow weary, don't we? Uh, no matter what the circumstances are, whether it's our own sin, whether it's the sin of uh, family members, um, sin of friends, uh, the realities of this world, whether it's loss of job or threats to our businesses, what's happening economically, certainly the accounts that we see in the news uh, on a regular basis, whether it be some form of uh, natural disaster, a war, uh, or even occasions of injustice, uh, as we've seen this week. And so uh, Paul reminds us, doesn't he, uh, in the book of Romans, that we groan, uh, we long for something more than what we often are able to experience on a daily basis. And in that groaning, sometimes we become weary, uh, we lose heart. And the idea of journeying through this life to our future home is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. Um, And it's a message for us as we study the Scriptures that there should be hope in the midst of hardship. And so as we um, come to the Word this morning, I just want to speak to you about a particular theme that Paul uses to talk about journeying through this life And that theme that he uses is actually the theme of running a race. And I know this is familiar to you. You've heard other sermons on this, but I want to take a fresh look at this idea of running the race in such a way that we can complete it and experience all that God has uh, to offer us, both in this life and in the future. One of the places that we see Paul use this theme so clearly is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and it's not our main text, but by way of introduction, I want to read it to you. Paul writes this in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do, not, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the price? Run in such a way that you may win, and everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we in an imperishable wreath. And this is the imagery that Paul uses to describe the journey that we're on, the race that we're on. And he points to the fact that our ambition is not just for some temporal relief or some solution or some victories in this life, but it's the ultimate victory. It's that imperishable wreath of eternal life, uh, a life forever spent in the presence of our Lord. And Sometimes um, we lose sight. Uh, Our gaze, our our focus is fixed on the things of this life, and that's what causes us to lose heart. But the text that we'll look at this morning, particularly Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to turn there, is a text that reminds us that we are to lift up our eyes and to set our eyes on the author and finisher of our race, and that's Jesus Christ. 
But with regard to this idea of running a race, uh, this journey that we're on through this world, Paul reminds us uh, in Philippians chapter 2.16 that it was his own ambition uh, to run the race in such a way that he could say that at the end of his life, I have not run in vain. And what he was speaking to specifically there in the context of Philippians 2 was looking at those who he'd imparted his life to, that he had spent his life bringing the gospel to, that they too would be faithful to run the race. And it was this imagery of passing a baton. Uh, we certainly see that in his uh, communication with Timothy, um, particularly in the book of 2 Timothy. There's this, this understanding of passing the baton to the next generation and wanting them to, to be faithful, to complete the race in such a way that they too can invest in the next generation. And so here we stand thousands of years later, having received that baton, and we run the race with the hope that we're passing that on to the next generation, maybe your kids or maybe those who are younger in the faith in your life that you're discipling, that you would want to see them also complete the course and experience the joy of this imperishable wreath of eternity with Christ and fellowship with him. He does remind us, though, in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 7 there, he says, to the Galatians, you were running well. And he affirms them, but then has to warn them in saying that you've really taken your eyes off of Christ and you've become encumbered with false teaching. Uh, you're beginning to find substitutes for the truth. And in not focusing exclusively on Christ and, and introducing these other elements of, of false teaching into your thinking, that you run the risk of not completing the race. And he draws their attention back and he says, you need to now walk in the spirit. He says, you need to uh, approach this race and this journey with an understanding that it's got to be spirit empowered uh, so that you can bear the fruit that only the spirit can accomplish in your life. And so this imagery is very familiar uh, in the writing of the apostle Paul as we come to the book of Hebrews and we begin to see him unfold for us exactly how we can run the race with faithfulness uh, to the very end, the imagery of a race is so familiar to us. I just want to maybe use it a little bit as an illustration to personalize it. You know, we love a good race, don't we? Uh, whether your fascination is uh, with race cars and you're a NASCAR fan, or whether it's horses and the running of the Kentucky Derby, or if it's biking and the Tour de Force, or the Tour de France, excuse me, there's this understanding that something occurs in a race that resonates with the human spirit. This idea of pursuing victory and, and overcoming and uh, overcoming the, the threats and the risks and the challenges and even the competitors uh, that are in the race with you. And I certainly uh, know that that's the case as the Olympics uh, come around every several years, whether it's the winter or the summer Olympics. Uh, the fascination that human beings have with watching the Olympics, where the ultimate of athletes are competing, no matter what the race, if it's the winter Olympics, you think of, of the slalom or the, the bobsled. And the anticipation is who's going to complete the course and to come out as the victor in the end. Um, and there really is no greater kind of human illustration of the running of the race 
apart from the race of the marathon during the Summer Olympics. And this is really the imagery that Paul has in mind as we come to Hebrews chapter 12. It's this idea of not a sprint. It's not a a quick uh, run around the course. This is a long endurance race that is going to be a test of of every ability, every skill. Uh, It's going to require maximum effort a maximum sacrifice to complete the course, to win the prize, to win the wreath. And of course, the context uh, for those who were reading uh, this text in the New Testament, they understood both the Isthmian Games, the Olympic Games. They were very familiar with the idea of the runner who was going to complete the course and to earn the wreath that was placed up on the diadem that he could have his eyes fixed on and see as the ultimate uh, crown of completing the course. And so that idea of the marathon being run, and of course, in the modern Olympics, uh, there's that moment, isn't there? Where the stadium is filled, people are on their feet, and they're looking for the first face, the first runner who's going to enter into the, the gates of the stadium and complete that final lap around the course and be crowned the winner. It's that picture that Paul draws for us in Hebrews chapter 12 in describing our own race uh, in this life. As I think about running a race, uh, one of the things that very much resonates with the human spirit, because I think we can all empathize with it, is we love the underdog, don't we? Uh, If you're watching the modern Olympics, they're so effective in telling the, the human interest stories. And all that that person has had to do to overcome in their life, the challenges that would have prevented them from being a victor. And knowing that about them, their weaknesses, their struggles, the trials, their their background, their their family story, all the things that really make it almost impossible to consider that they could be standing before you, there on the podium, receiving the gold medal. There's something about someone facing all of those threats and risks really that makes them the underdog. Against all odds, they could win. And Paul knows that about us. When you look at us as Christians running the race, you want to talk about being an underdog. We who are unworthy have no ability in our own human effort to even enter the race. We enter the race through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as he'll tell us in Hebrews 12, it's through the power of Jesus Christ and his example for us and his love and commitment to us and what he's done for our behalf that we're able as spiritual underdogs to become spiritual champions, spiritual victors in the race. And so our own story of the Christian life is is much like those stories that you see in the modern Olympics uh, against all odds. We have the opportunity to prevail and we do that in the power of of Jesus Christ. And so this is really the ultimate story of the underdog uh, becoming the victor. And it's something that I want to share with you this morning as we looked at the text as an encouragement to you. Uh, Paul cites in this text that you're going to be tempted in running the race to grow weary. You're going to lose heart. You're going to be discouraged. There's going to be things that attempt to take your eyes off of Christ who that are going to be threats to, to taking you off the course and, and defeating you. And we can all empathize with that. And you may be in a place today where you've lost your footing. Uh, You have your eyes set on things, maybe it's your own sin or, or again, the sin of someone else. And 
or the realities of living in this fallen world, and you're losing heart. And this morning, I want to encourage you by, again, resetting your gaze on the person of Jesus Christ and the promise that he will enable us to complete this course. When we look at the race of the Christian life, we see all these elements uh, in our life that exist, which uh, are, are not just threats, but we realize the stakes themselves in running the race are eternal, aren't they? Um, but at the same time, the strength that is needed is divine. And here's the good news. The outcome is secured. It's every reason for us not to lose hope because of that great promise that we will complete the course if we remain committed to Christ. And it is the case that the course is perilous. It's a narrow path for us. It is filled both with internal and external threats that pose the risk of defeating us uh, and being successful. It may be that there are certain things in our lives, patterns, uh, weaknesses, uh, self-imposed injuries uh, because of sin, where these injuries and and these deficiencies uh, present to us on a daily basis the fear that we will fail. So we need to come to this text. We need to see carefully what this promise entails for us today. And uh, again, I hope that it'll be a great encouragement to you. Let me help set up the context for the book of Hebrews just a little bit. The major theme, of course, is the superiority of Christ. Uh, This is the the main emphasis of the entire writing of the book of Hebrews. And if you understand the audience, uh, it helps you understand why this theme is so significant. It's suggested by most commentators that the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians, uh, some of them in the faith, some of them still determining if they were going to follow Christ completely. But they were a group of Jewish uh, people who had the ambition uh, to become Christians, and yet they were still occupied with the Old Covenant and the uh, the, the tabernacle system. Matter of fact, some commentators suggest that the main audience of the book of Hebrews were a group of Jewish people known as the Essenes. And we're familiar with different sects of Judaism. We know that the Pharisees and Sadducees, but the Essenes were also another priestly uh, group of leaders uh, in, the, in the Jewish uh, context. And many of these Essenes uh, had begin to see that there were problems with the sacrificial system. They, they understood uh, the testimony of Christ that was out there, but uh, they were beginning to think that somehow uh, the promise of, of a future kingdom was going to be uh, an establishment of a new Jerusalem and a new sacrificial system that was going to take the place of, of what was faulty and corrupt uh, in Judaism. Uh, Some actually believed that those gathered in the community of Qumran, where the Qumran scrolls were found, may have been uh, this group, this sect, that uh, the book of Hebrews was originally written to. But what you need to understand is these were Jewish individuals who were wrestling with the authenticity of the Christian message and understanding completely the superiority of Christ over the old sacrificial system. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He is articulating very clearly that the old system has been satisfied 
in the new covenant and the coming of Christ. He is the great high priest, the ultimate priest. He is the one who uh, has made every provision uh, for our sins to be forgiven. And so the author of Hebrews is helping this audience understand that they don't need to be distracted by religious systems or uh, human efforts to somehow achieve the forgiveness of God, but they need to look to Christ himself. And, you know, you think in this world today, there's a lot of people who buy into some kind of religious teaching that says human effort is what you need to rely on. And if you want to really focus the book of Hebrews, what's being said here is you can't rely on yourself. There's nothing you can do that will enable you to complete this course and run the race with success to enter into the presence of God. You have to look to Christ alone. And so what we'll see here uh, in this chapter are six observations or characteristics of how Christians are to run the race. And let me just give them to you quickly, and I'll repeat them as we survey this chapter. Number one, we'll see a Christ-like consecration in verse one. Secondly, we'll see a Christ-focused concentration in verse two. Next, we'll see a Christ-empowered courage that enables us to run the race in verses three through four. And then we'll see the need for Christ-honoring correction in verses 5 through 11. Fifthly, we'll see Christ-like conditioning for the race in verses 12 through 17. And then the conclusion, verses 18 through 24, of a Christ-centered celebration. It's that scene, it's that image of us entering into the stadium. And we see ourselves completing the race, standing on the podium, receiving the wreath or the medal, and understanding that that itself is Christ himself, the relationship that is going to be ours for all eternity, a relationship that will be characterized by perfect love, no intrusion of sin on our part competing with the affection of Christ or for Christ. And this is what we can anticipate. So let's begin to look at the text, Hebrews chapter 12. We begin reading in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And here's our illustration. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, Paul starts off here by using the word therefore. So this always means we need to look at the immediate context to understand exactly what his next point is going to be. And as we look at uh, the context, we go back to Hebrews chapter 11, a text I'm sure very familiar to all of you. Uh, Many have described this as uh, kind of the heroes of faith chapter. But again, understand the audience. Paul is writing to a a group of, I'm sorry, Paul, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of, of Jewish individuals who are very familiar with the hero of the Jewish faith. And so the author here in chapter 11 says in verse 4, he starts by saying, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. And so the author goes all the way back and says to us, Abel made the right choice. He's one that demonstrated genuine faith in God and followed his commandments, not Cain, but Abel. And he goes on in verse 5 to talk about the faith of Enoch. And we know that Enoch 
was considered to be a, a friend of God. And he walked with him in such fellowship that he was just taken up uh, without dying and brought into the presence uh, of God. He goes on to say in verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reference prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Noah ultimately becomes the uh, father of the human race. All have died before. Uh, because of sin and being carried away. But Noah exercises genuine faith in God, and God uses him, rescues his family, and then begins to uh, create from his descendants all the nations of the earth. One of those nations that God calls out is led by the man Abraham. So we see in verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he is called by God, he obeyed him. Of course, we know the account uh, of many expressions of faith on Abraham's part, even placing his son Isaac on an altar uh, and being willing to kill him, take his life with such confidence that God had promised a descendant uh, and descendants through him that would outnumber the sands of the seashore. And so Abraham trusted God, uh, knowing that somehow he was going to honor uh, his promise. And, and Sarah herself, being old of age, it says in verse 11 that she was characterized by, by faith and had the ability to conceive and, and give birth uh, to Isaac. It goes on, uh, verse 13, uh, in, in saying this, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And, and I just want to stop there. This is a phrase that's often used in the New Testament uh, referring to us. And it's this language of being pilgrims, being on this journey, being uh, on this path to our eternal home here talking uh, about us as aliens and, and strangers. This is not our home. Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 3 there that we are citizens of heavens. In essence, we are pilgrims on this earth. And so these were those known to the Jews who had uh, really exercised genuine faith in God and had been obedient to him as they journeyed through life. And it says all of these, though, had not received the promises but having seen and having welcomed them from a distance. And what he's saying here is Christ had not yet come. The, the promise of God's provision uh, and a solution for sin had not yet ultimately come. And they were relying on the sacrificial system. They were relying on what God had commanded them to do, to walk in faith and obedience. And whatever he revealed to them, they did that uh, in faith, but they were waiting for God's ultimate provision. And he goes on to describe through the rest of chapter 11, talking about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and then Moses particularly, and, and the journeys in the wilderness, and, and the faithfulness and unfaithfulness then of the Israelites. Uh, he goes on to talk about even a Gentile, Rahab, who demonstrates faith in God there in the city of Jericho, and her, her life is spared. And, and he says, but in verse 32, time will fail me. I can't even tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness and obtained prom uh, promises. And he goes on to just talk about all the challenges, all the battles that were fought, all the expressions and demonstrations of faith. This is the therefore of chapter 12. And, and, and the author is saying here too, uh, this Jewish audience, listen, you know all those accounts. And those who walked by faith, 
But now, you need to direct your attention to the author and finisher of our faith, and that is Jesus Christ. So in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, because we've rehearsed the history of those you know who are so faithful, this great cloud of witnesses, now it's time for us to run the race, complete our course, fulfill our journey as pilgrims. And he says in doing this, we need to lay aside every encumbrance. And, and to this audience, he's saying, lay aside all those things that you add to your faith, those things that cause you to believe by human effort that somehow you can earn or merit God's favor. Set those things aside. And not just those things, but set aside the sin, the personal sin that entangles you and, and defeats you in, in living a life of, of faithfulness and obedience to the true God. Set that aside. And now prepare yourself to run. And this is an endurance race. It is a marathon. This is not a short sprint. And you have got to prepare yourself to complete this race, to experience the ultimate joy and provision of God. And so he comes in this verse explaining to us that we need to consecrate. And the word consecrate means to set ourselves apart unto. And this is the idea of laying aside every encumbrance, false teaching, false understanding, religious pursuits, and personal sin to set ourselves apart, to consecrate ourselves, to run this race. And this is a Christ-like consecration. Christ himself ran his race. And we're going to see that in verse 2 as we look at a Christ-focused concentration. And this is really the heart uh, of the text for us. The author of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Two weeks ago, I had a chance to conduct uh, a wedding for my nephew. And when I do a wedding, I like to explain or unpack uh, some of the elements of the Christian wedding ceremony. There's all kinds of elements within the the Christian ceremony that point to the Christian life. Uh, For instance, uh, uh, the bride entering in on a a runner down the center aisle. And if you go to a wedding, you often aren't allowed to walk down the center aisle because that center aisle, and particularly if they use a white runner, is preserved uh, for the entrance of the bride. And the idea there is that you are entering in to make a covenant. And that covenant is being made on holy ground. And that's why that center aisle is protected from people to trample over or to defile. You keep it pure and holy because a covenant is going to be made. Or uh, the symbolism there, of course, of when the groom lifts the bride's veil. And this is referring to those of us who have a covenant relationship with Christ as the bridegroom. And because of his work on the cross, the veil has been rent. It has been torn. There's no separation between us. There is intimacy of fellowship. Um, And there's so many other elements of the Christian wedding ceremony that highlight the Christian life. But the one that uh, I enjoy so much pointing out is this idea of 
of the processional of attendance. And often in a wedding ceremony, there is not only the best man or uh, the maid of honor, but a number of friends, those known to uh, the bride and groom who are coming to stand with them. And they enter into the sanctuary and they walk down the aisle and they gather at the front uh, of the sanctuary there. And this is the symbolism of Hebrews chapter 11. This is that great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us, who, whose example we can follow. And this is the reason that this is included in the Christian wedding ceremony is this picture of now the bride entering in, following uh, in the path. And the bride, of course, is the picture of the church, those of us who are believers, who are coming to meet our bridegroom. And as we journey down our own path and we follow the examples of those who've gone before us, something amazing happens every time I've ever done a wedding. It's my my favorite part of it. As the bride enters in, and even though she has close friends and, and family members often serving as attendants, and, and they're thrilled to have them present and with them. Something always happens when those doors open and the bride steps forward. She has her gaze set exclusively on one person. And that person is her groom. And you understand the symbolism here. And it's exactly what Paul's saying here, this fixing of our eyes. Yes, others have gone before us. And Paul makes that here in the text that those who've gone before us in chapter 11, we can look to their example, but now as we run our own race, we set our eyes on whom? Our bridegroom, on Christ himself. And this idea of fixing our eyes means to set them in an unmovable way. Nothing is going to compete with our focus and our attention on Christ himself. Often in that moment at a wedding, as I look at the bride's gaze upon the bridegroom, it's as though there's nobody else in the room. And her eyes are set on him in such a way that nothing is going to be a distraction. There is no competition. And what is her longing expectation is as she comes down that aisle, she will come to the end of that aisle, and she will be side by side. She will be in intimate proximity, bound forever with her groom. And this is really the idea in the text here. We have our eyes so fixed and so set on the one that we love more than anyone else. And our hope is we will complete the course. We will come to the end of our race, and we will stand forever in intimate proximity with our beloved Lord, our Savior, and not just our Savior, but but our friend, the one who loves us in a, a personal and intimate way, who knows all of our flaws, all of our weaknesses, and in spite of all that, gave his life for us. And the anticipation of the couple there at the front of the sanctuary is just that, that they are going to spend their lives together forever. And it's a covenant that's made 
to bind their hearts together, to say there will be no one else who competes for my affection, for my attention, for you. And so that's the idea here is that we fix our eyes on Jesus now. Not just the examples of other faithful people. Those are helpful to us. They should be an encouragement to us, but on Jesus Christ himself. And so what the author of the text here helps us to see is that we need to understand that he himself ran and completed the race of the life that was assigned to him. When he came, he functioned as the author and perfecter of our faith. If you will, he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is the author of our faith. He's the one who created the solution, if you will, with the Father and the Spirit. Uh, And in that plan, offered to us redemption and the forgiveness of sins. But he's also the perfecter, the one who will bring it to completion. He is the omega. He is the end for us and will help us in completing our own journey of faith. And so uh, in the text we see here now, it's described that he ran this race for the joy that was set before him. Now talk about the, the challenges and the threats and the trials that we might face in the Christian life. What we see here is that he did, he pursued this life in such a way, enduring the cross and despising the shame for what ultimate purpose? that he would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. He too would enter into his rest and into the presence of fellowship with the Father. And so Christ endured all things for the ultimate end himself. And this is what we see in verse 3 when we look at uh, what's told to us next in this section. Not only is there a Christ-like consecration being set apart, And is there a Christ-focused concentration of fixing our eyes? We see that there is a a Christ-empowered courage in verses 3 through 4. Consider him, Christ, who endured such what? Hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He says, you're not yet resistant to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. You're going to face challenges in this life. You're going to face threats and distractions. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It may very well cost your life as a believer. But Christ persevered. And if you look to him and follow his example, there's not a need to lose heart when you grow weary. And so we can derive from Christ the courage to persevere in this race. He completed it. He will perfect our race as well, no matter what the threats are. This is why it's it's so great in this text earlier back in Hebrews chapter 4 that the author explains to us that that Christ intercedes on our behalf, and he's a, a great high priest who what? He sympathizes with us. Everything that we're going to go through in this life, Christ understands. He sympathizes with us. And yet he prevailed in the strength of the Spirit, and we can as well. Well, not only do we see uh, the need to be set apart and consecrated, not only do we see our need to concentrate our gaze on Jesus Christ himself, not only do we see in verses 3 through 4 that we can derive courage from his own example, 
and to not lose heart and grow weary. But we can also understand that there are going to be occasions where we need correction. We're going to need the assistance of of a loving God and a loving Father who is going to correct us when we are tempted to, to set foot off the course, to stumble and fall. And so we see in verses 5 through 11 this Christ-honoring correction. Let's read it together. It says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. In verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What does this kind of Christ-honoring correction accomplish in our lives? Well, it accomplishes several things. Paul says in verse 8, it says that, this confirms, this kind of correction confirms that we are authentic children of God. Are you under the discipline of God? Receive it gladly. If it's instruction and correction that's intended to keep you on the course of obedience and faith, it should encourage you that God loves you enough to correct you. It should give you a sense of assurance of faith that God loves you enough to discipline and correct you. He says in verse 9, not only that, it humbles us. It places us back under uh, the loving, sovereign rule and authority of our Heavenly Father. And so it has to humble us in spirit. In verse 10, it says that this kind of discipline and correction allows us ultimately to share in the holiness of God himself. What a great purpose in this discipline that is extended to us. With the outcome in verse 11 is it will yield what? The peaceable fruit of righteousness. Friends, in this journey, in this race, we will require correction. It's just as though there were a coach standing on the sidelines yelling out to us. Corrections, instructions to improve our gait. Who shouts out warnings where the way that we're running the race is is not in accord with what will allow us to complete it successfully and faithfully. And so we submit ourselves under that instruction and under that counsel. And so we need Christ-honoring correction in our life to run the race. If you're the recipient of correction, don't resist it, but accept it knowing that it's intended to aid us in the course. And of course, that correction comes through his word. It comes through his spirit. It comes through his people. Next, as we survey this chapter uh, quickly this morning, we see in verses 12 through 16, uh, a Christ-like conditioning. If we're going to receive the instruction and, and discipline of our Lord, then what do we need to do? We need to respond in obedience. We need to respond by correcting what is wrong or 
uh, if it's wrong thinking or right, wrong actions or wrong attitudes in our life. And so the author of the text says here, verse 12, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame will not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let me just stop and comment on this section. There's instruction being given here, and, and the author, knowing his audience, is, is making allusions to phrases that have been used in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah uh, chapter 35, verse 3, where it talks about strengthening the hands that are, are weak and the knees that are feeble. Uh, this would have been a text that would have been familiar to the audience. And the idea here is, as you run the race, you're going to grow weary, and in so growing weary, if, if you've ever seen somebody just fatigued and running a race, what do they begin to do? Uh, their hands aren't by their side running. They just fall to their side and their knees become wobbly and shaky and they begin to stumble. Okay. And, and sometimes this can be true of us, spiritually speaking. And what he's saying now is receive the discipline and instruction of the Lord and now regain your composure. Okay. Get your stride back. Okay. Discipline yourself, okay? condition yourself to find your form in the race again. Okay? Those hands that are weak, pick them up again. Okay? Your knees that are, are, are wobbly, okay? refocus them. And then he says, make straight paths for your feet. And there's many times in Scripture we're, we're reminded that we're on a path and we need to follow the, a straight path. Okay, and and particularly here, the the language in in the Greek is talking about a race course and making sure that you're running a straight path, meaning stay in your lane. If you're weaving and running across the lanes, you're losing time. Uh, You're falling behind. You might even step off the course. Get back in your lane. He's saying, remind yourself, okay, what God has called you to do. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Stay in your lane. And then he says what this looks like uh, by way of of human relationships and some of the ways that we get out of sorts and and we lose our gate and and we get out of our lane is when there's sinful habits and, and implications to our relationships. And so specifically, he says in verse 14, now pursue peace with all men. Do you have unreconciled conflict with somebody? Do you have things that, that distract you from the priority of Christ because you're, you're embattled with other believers over issues that where, where forgiveness has not been sought or, or granted? He goes on to say, pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And he's saying if there's areas of, of sin and unholiness in your life, you need to repent of those things. So that, verse 15, no one comes short of the grace of God. And one of the ways that, that we begin to see these, these dangers uh, in our lives that are threats to completing the race, is there bitterness in our lives? Do we hold grudges? Okay, Are, are we angry and, and bitter towards people who have offended us and hurt us? And so our gaze and our, our focus is on them, and our pride has been affected so that, that we want our, our pride to be sabbed by people uh, again, thinking more highly of us or, or making things right with us. This is no bitterness, okay? If you've been hurt or offended, you need to strive for forgiveness and, and reconciliation. 
says this kind of broken relationship and, and the allowance of sin in our lives expressed this way defiles us. And then he goes on to use the example, again, well known to them, of Esau. He says, let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. And he goes on and, and explains the offense of Esau. But basically, the, the intention here is uh, Esau, he didn't remain true. He had been given the privilege of the birthright, just like the Jewish people had been given the birthright by God to be his chosen people. And what did Esau do? He rejected that. He pursued his own fleshly passions. He minimized that birthright. And to the point that he lost the blessing. And the author of the text is saying, don't be like Esau. You know his story. You, the Jewish people, you have been given the the birthright that God wants to bestow upon you to be fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. And this really takes us to the next section of Scripture that we conclude with in this survey, verses 18 and following. And here we see what I term a Christ-centered celebration. He says, verse 18, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Let me stop. Again, speaking to this Jewish audience, uh, the author is referring now back to the Israelites who've been rescued out of Israel. They had been called forth to become the children of God. He was going to make of them a nation. He's going to bestow upon them the birthright that he was going to bless them. And here they are before Mount Sinai. This is the illusion, verses 18 through 21. And this Mount Sinai for them was going to be the place where God presented himself. The very presence of God was going to be displayed on Mount Sinai. And so they were instructed. They could not interrupt because they were not holy. They could not enter up onto the mountain. But God would allow Moses to come. And so the Israelites were characterized by fear at Mount Sinai. This was a place that they did not deserve to go. They were unworthy. And here's what the author says to us by way of contrast. But those of you who now have uh, received the the opportunity to come to Christ and, and the benefits of the new covenant, he says, but you, if you follow Jesus Christ, you now have come not to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion which is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where there are myriads of angels. And you've not come just to the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, but to the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And not only have you come to Jerusalem where the church is going to be gathered one day, but you're coming into the presence of God, the judge. And to all the spirits who will be gathered before him, in verse 24, and to Jesus, and to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Why is this a Christ-centered celebration? Because what the author of the text tells us here is that one day we will complete our course, and we will come into 
a heavenly Jerusalem. And we will come where that full assembly of witnesses are gathered. It's as though we are entering that stadium at the close of the marathon. And everyone is present on their feet. All the spirits and the angels are present. And as we have our eyes fixed on the ultimate, the ultimate trophy, if you will, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. We come and we run into his embrace where we can rest, as, as the author says earlier in Hebrews 4, we can enter into our eternal rest and forever be in the presence of our beloved Lord and Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer. He, who we have made a covenant relationship with. So friends of Cornerstone, I don't know what circumstances you face, but I want to remind you that Christ is the author and the completer of our faith. Fix your eyes on him. Set your course. If you've grown weary and you've lost heart, if you begin to tremble and, and stumble, restore your fix, restore your gait, align yourself with the truth that you know, and run with abandonment into the arms of Jesus Christ. Let me just commit us to prayer now as we think about these things. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word that Christ has fulfilled uh, all things for us. And as the author and perfecter of our faith, we have the great and wonderful hope to run this race, that we might come ultimately into his presence, unhindered, unbroken, unseparated, to enjoy all of eternity in his presence. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would become more real and true to us, that we would devote ourselves to the study of your word where you reveal yourself, that we would know you in clearer and more faithful and intimate ways, that you would help us to unentangle and uncumber ourselves. Those things that cause our gaze to be distracted from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to fix our eyes on you in such a way that we no longer stumble or turn away. Those things that cause temptations for us uh, to become the object of our interest and our affections uh, that compete with you as being first in our hearts we pray that you would aid us towards repentance. And if correction is needed, do it in such a way that, that we can understand your purposes in it and be restored to run this race faithfully. And Lord, we claim the hope that you will enable us to complete this race and perfect it in such a way that we will uh, be able to, like those who've gone before us, uh, be found faithful. So we need you now. We, we ask for help, your aid. We thank you for your people. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We commit ourselves anew in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, friends, thank you so much. Glad to be with you in the word today.